Greg, you're you're sort of the I feel like you're kind of from our perspective as a you know the the filthy communists. Um, <laughs> you're like the loyal opposition, you know, like like uh, you're not near a tandem. A quick reminder to the listeners that we've begun our Patreon. So we're putting out two episodes every week now. One that will be a bonus or locked episode for patrons who uh, support the show with $5 a month. And everyone else still has access to the weekly episode. Uh, Our first Patreon episode is already up. So if you're so inclined and are uh, interested... Go check that out, and we'd greatly appreciate it. We have our second uh, Patreon episode coming out very shortly, so keep an eye out for that as well. Thanks again for all the support and all the great feedback. Uh, please keep it up. We'd love to hear from everyone. Uh, email us at uh, leftanchorpodcast at gmail.com. That's uh, leftanchorpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter, on the Facebook, and so forth. All right, everybody. See you next time. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we have a very special guest, um, Washington Post columnist Greg Sargent. Um, welcome to the to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for having me on, guys. So Pleasure, pleasure to have you. Greg has a, uh, a new book out uh, just uh, just like, what, a month ago? Can you, can you tell us about that real quick, Where what it's called, where people can get it? Sure. It's it's called An Uncivil War, and it's been out since October 16th, and you can get it uh, from your Amazon overlords or from any bookstore, or just about any bookstore. Great, yeah. And um, I wrote a review of this for the Washington Monthly. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll post that in the description. Um, but... Uh, if I could sort of summarize, you know, maybe you could correct me on this, Greg, but if I could summarize it, it uh, you know, you go through all the ways in which the Republican Party, you know, is basically kind of pursuing quasi-authoritarian m- modes of politics, uh, you know, vote suppression, uh, rigging uh, the district boundaries, um, you know, installing just partisan stooges on the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. And you conclude that, you know, th- that Democrats should should aim to fight that, and, you know, and, and b- not by sort of counter-rigging the uh, election so that, you know, like you're like disenfranchising old white people or something, but by like setting up actually legitimately fair uh, uh, institutions, you know, like, uh, like the sort of, you know, U.S. government textbook of how America is supposed to work in, in theory. Um, is that a fair characterization? Yeah. I, you know, what, what I argue is that Democrats in responding to this kind of, uh, authoritarian power politics that really has consumed the Republican party and that it has been using for a long time now, um, that the, that the proper response is to try and strike a balance between not unilaterally disarming in the face of it, which means, you know, escalating in certain respects where it's appropriate and maybe defensible and, and could be effective, um, but also moving to take off the table wherever possible this type of uh, tool that they've been wielding. So, you know, what I cannot for in the book is... Uh, nonpartisan commissions for redistricting. So when we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen three more uh, such commissions added just in the 2018 elections um, and uh, a type of compromise offer in which uh, voter suppression is removed from the equation. Um, and and I, I should say that I, I really try to set up an ideal. I, I understand that a lot of this stuff is hard to achieve, but I try to articulate what seems to me to be like a, a framework for approaching this stuff. Um, we're going to have a very big debate among Democrats. It's already started. You've, you've been involved in it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you, when, if and when Democrats take back, uh, both houses of Congress and, and the White House, there's going to be a very big debate among Democrats and liberals and progressives over how hard to play the constitutional hardball game. And so what I try to do is just articulate kind of general principles that seem to me to, 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 to be a, a, 
a reasonable and fair way of approaching that question. Yeah, that yeah, um and the and the the book is is very, you know, it's very careful, very very fair and I think, you know, it's definitely worth going through because there's a lot of stuff that's sort of going on under the hood uh, you know, in American politics that people aren't aware of. And I think one one thing maybe worth emphasizing is is a very the very idea of of gerrymandering in the sense of partisan legislatures being allowed to draw their own district boundaries is so outrageous that like that doesn't even occur to people in other countries as a possibility. And the United States is, uh, uh, from what I've read, the only country in the world where this is allowed. Because it's like it's like the very first thing you do when you're writing a constitution. Like, well, of course the freaking politicians can't draw their own districts. Like, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but, like, that's where we're at. You know, this is our 18th century constitutional framework, you know, which is still sort of staggering on step by step. Well, um, and so you actually see sort of a spillover effect from it, too, right? Like, so look at what's happening in Wisconsin right now. Um, just to, to catch everyone up, you guys know this, but, um, you know, a Democrat won the gubernatorial contest, and the Republican legislature has responded after he was elected by stripping his powers in various ways. Now, you know, that becomes a lot more outrageous when you realize that the Republicans control the legislature precisely because of, of partisan, you know, hyper, hyper gerrymandering. So, you know, not only did they entrench their power through quasi-illegitimate means, but they are now using it to strip the powers of an actual majority, uh, you know, governor who, after he won, and, you know, of course, they wouldn't have done that if a Republican had won. So it, 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 it you can actually there are, it can compound itself in its its, you know, lack of legitimacy. Do you think Republican voters care for the most part? I mean, I, I, seriously, I, I we assume as um, leftists or, or uh, you know, I think I see Democrats especially assume that merely the charge of being anti-democratic will have efficacy amongst the broader population. But like. We've seen in polls and various uh, responses to Trump's authoritarianism and anti-democratic uh, mode of politics that it seems to be favored. And, and um, the power grab itself seems to satisfy uh, at least the base. Um, so so I, I'm wondering, in this effort to become more democratic and, and to push for these procedural reforms, uh, is there something politically that needs to be done uh, beyond just appealing to the conscience of the voters who seem thus far not to really care? Well, it sort of depends on which voters we're talking about, right? Like, it's absolutely true that Republican voters are, are perfectly fine with, with Republican politicians using all these, you know, um, quasi-authoritarian tactics. In fact, in the book, I run through a bunch of polling on this question. You actually do see Republican voters... Um, deciding that fictional voter impersonation fraud is a bigger problem than voter um, disenfranchisement is. And, you know, the bottom line is that, that, that there, isn't, there isn't voter fraud and there is voter disenfranchisement. I mean, it's just reality, and, and they're, they're simply not in touch with that reality, or if they are, they don't care. Um, one of the most interesting interviews I did for the book was with a Republican pollster who's, you know, he's a prominent guy. Uh, he's named in the book, and he candidly talked about why Republican voters support these types of um, authoritarian tactics. He, mm -hmm. he, he's, this is a guy who has done, uh, you know, years and years of focus grouping and polling among Republican primary voters for Republican candidates of all different kinds. And what he said is that the Republican electorate is deeply convinced that there's a shady alliance underway between Democratic voters and minorities and undocumented immigrants in which, uh, sorry, Democratic politicians um, and, and, and minority um, voters and uh, undocumented immigrant quote-unquote voters in which uh, Democrats use social spending to buy the support of these voters who often vote illegally for them. And so once they're persuaded of this, they greenlight any tactic by Republicans in the belief that it's actually a legitimate response to what Democrats are doing, which they aren't doing. But that, you know, and what I took away from that mainly is that for Democrat, for Republican voters, 
voter suppression efforts really are very much about race, right? And so, you know, to your question, um, I don't know if we can win over Republican voters on this stuff, but I do think we can win over independent voters. Um, it, it seems to me that independents really have uh, a, a, a they, they're willing to uh, condemn corruption in the electoral process or in the governing process, whether it's done by Democrats or Republicans, I'm talking mainly about pure independent voters um, and even some Republican leaning ones. And so, you know, it's, it's a little hard to say whether we can really build uh, a majority coalition around these ideas. But one thing we do know is that when, when Republican corruption is really kind of, you know, off the charts, they lose big time and corruption is a big part of the democratic messaging against them in the process of beating them. I mean, think of 2006, right? The, the, the Congress, the Republican Congress was just, you know, saturated with corruption uh, and Democrats won both houses on it, on an anti-corruption message and a pro and a pro good governance message. And then the same thing just happened in 2018, right? The, the white house is just deeply saturated in corruption and self-dealing of all kinds and the Republican Congress was not just kind of looking the other way, but actively enabling it and shielding Trump from accountability. And, and there's really no question that that was a big part of why Democrats won such an enormous victory, right? Poll after poll showed sizable majorities wanted a check on this guy. And so I think we can build majority coalitions around, um, you know, good governance and good politics. Um, two, two, just like sort of data points for, uh, if people haven't, uh, have missed these stories. So, you know, you were talking about the, uh, <clears throat> Wisconsin state assembly and how they, they have, I think successfully now passed a bunch of bills to, uh, to basically like core out the powers of the governor. Uh, so in the election in 2018 for the state assembly in Wisconsin, Democrats got 53% of the vote, Republicans got 45%. So a huge vote margin in favor of the Democrats. But Democrats got 36% of the seats and Republicans got 64% of the seats. So a super a huge super majority of seats off off of an uh, 8 point loss. And that, you know, that is the amount of, you know, a, a handicap there. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that's that's what I'm talking about. This com- compounded corruption, right? Like, yeah. you know, they they shouldn't even be there, and yet they are. You, you know, through quasi illegitimate means, and then they use that power to uh, strip away the um, you know the core governing powers of the of the Democrat who was elected by a majority, precisely yeah, yeah. to do the things that they are stripping him of the ability to do. And the second thing I wanted to mention is this unbelievable situation in the North Carolina 9th District. So this this is, uh, for people who haven't been paying attention, um, it's it's a, a scenario in which it appears virtually certain that a paid Republican operative in one, count, or one or two counties, like Bladen County and Robeson County, I believe, in this district— uh, was basically conducting an an uh, electoral fraud scheme, not a voter fraud scheme, not a not a scheme in which like voters conspired to do illegal voting or whatever, but in which someone controlled the machinery of electoral administration, specifically absentee ballots, which he illegally it seems paid people to collect and then and some in some cases fill out. For, for themselves and and then probably destroyed a bunch of them uh, for for the Democrat who lost by like 900 votes and and it looks very possible through the election to uh, to the Republican in this way and the Republican response to this just you know this is this is basically how the Iranian conservatives uh, stole the election in 2009. That that sparked the uh, you know the green you know uprising in Iran. Uh, the response from conservatives in North Carolina is uh, we need to stop people from voting from absentee ballots uh, altogether, except for troops. 
because look, you said there's no voter fraud, but there's voter fraud. We did it, you know, but also we should certify the election immediately and stop complaining. So just the amount of bad faith is just it's mind bending. And, uh, you, you know, you you see that they there's no you know, there's no bottom here. It's just like bad faith all the way down. You're never going to get. That is exactly right. And, and you know, a lot of these voter suppression and gerrymandering efforts are, are also saturated with the same kind of bad faith, although maybe they don't cross into criminality. Right. Yeah. I mean, the notion that that uh, that 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 um, we we need to 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 have voter ID because of, you know, fictional voter impersonation fraud um, is absurd enough on its face. But then it's actually used you know, expressly to uh, disenfranchise Democratic voters uh, through targeted, uh, you know, methods that allow some voter ID types and, and not others. And so it's just, you know, to do that and then just claim that you're doing it in the name of good governance and, and, and you know, clean democracy. It's just it's just like so preposterously ludicrous that you can't you don't even know how to, like, begin to explain it. Yeah. Um. Any thoughts, Alexi? You got a question? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a number of questions. The The anti-democratic uh, actions of the Republicans have been and are always clear and upfront, and they seem not to, to bother the supporters. Uh, would you say there are any anti-democratic actions in the, within the Democratic Party establishment that are problematic, that, that tend to uh, keep part of the, the coalition from uh, having influence or, or, or seek uh, in its own right to kind of um, have elite or donor class um, power enforced without um, allowing kind of democratic processes to inform the politics of the party? Yeah, I mean, I think in 2016, the, the DNC got, you know, pretty problematic at times, although it, it, it was very complicated. I actually did a fair amount of reporting on on some of the, the, the bigger stuff and and uh, the, around the uh, debate schedule, I don't know if your if your listeners remember, but um, but uh, Hillary. Our, li- Clinton... our listeners remember everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign wanted to limit the number of debates, and uh, you know they essentially were in talks with the DNC over that, and it's a, it was a little more complicated than it was often portrayed as, because. The DNC was in some ways in a legitimately tough spot because some campaigns wanted one thing, other campaigns wanted another thing, and they kind of had to get the balance right. But I think it's pretty clear that the DNC erred on the side of of limiting uh, the debates in in a way that that favored Hillary. Um, And that, you know, that's pretty questionable, I thought. And, you know, I think we're going to probably see uh, a bit of a different... um, landscape this time around because there's not going to be like one establishment favorite in the same way but you know i think um we're gonna essentially um really put them on we're gonna have to put them on notice that that kind of thing can't happen again because you know the field could winnow down right to a sort of more donor friendly candidate and then maybe a, a a, a more, you know, a, a, a social democratic candidate. And at that point, we could start seeing some of the same stuff. And I'm just hopeful that, that they, they don't, you know, that they don't have a rerun of it. Well, apparently Liz Brunig started the 2020 uh, primary already. Apparently uh, the whole uprising uh, for and against Beto has, has uh, launched uh, a thousand ships. I don't know. Um, yep. so. <laughs> Seems to be underway already. <laughs> Never a dull moment. <laughs> yeah. Um I've got a question. You know, I sort of brought this up in my um <clears throat> rev- uh review um but I guess maybe we could start with uh with with how kind of responsible good governance type of just like basic democracy stuff may shade into what I would label as kind of, you know, political fecklessness and i'm thinking of uh you know nancy pelosi in in 2010 right or no in 2009 i believe when they when the democrats came in the the first thing they did was they put in paygo right um which is that any new you know with some exceptions i believe any new 
spending has to be offset with new revenue or, uh, you know, some sort of spending cuts. And that, you know, in the context of a recession, especially like the worst recession in 80 years, that was just like really stupid, you know, because it, it, it handicapped their ability to spend in an in an uh, an environment in which spending was the you know even looking at it from a technocratic sort of economic productivity standpoint was absolutely the thing you should be doing as much as possible just fling money out the door i don't you know who cares if it's not even getting anything very good just get it out there and it seems as though she's going to do the same thing again you know um and oh i should add actually that that when um you know, the, the, the result of all this, you know, Obama boasted about his cutting the deficit, you know, continually over the over his whole presidency, you know, because it was really big and he managed to whittle it down. Uh, the result of that was that Republicans just had a lot of budget headroom to give a giant tax cut to the rich whenever they took power in, in 2017. And um, so I guess on that question, you know, do you do you think that Democrats be there's a danger of Democrats thinking they're being responsible when really they're mainly just enabling, you know, Republicans. I mean, it's a really difficult question, right? Like I, I should say right out front that I agree with you completely on your diagnosis of, of what she did then and what she's doing now that, that it's just it, it's basically folly. Um, it's a little bit of a different type of question from uh, hardball politics and, pro- and procedural warfare questions, right? We're talking about like you know, spending questions around uh, um, self-constraints uh, on, on budgetary matters versus self-constraints on kind of political and procedural hardball, which are a bit different, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. but generally speaking, you know, I think that this is actually, a, I mean, the core problem, as I understand it, and this applies both to what you're talking about and the procedural stuff, is that if one side is just operating in total bad faith, um, and, you know, twisting the rules in every conceivable way and, and you know, um, gaming, capturing the, the, the political machinery, as you put it earlier, to, to manipulate outcomes that are counter-majoritarian uh, or, to use your area, you know, um, just acting in total bad faith on the deficit. If one party is doing that, then how does the other one respond? I mean, without essentially unilaterally disarming, and it's not an easy question to answer in like a big picture way, right? It's almost like a case by case thing, where yeah, you just yeah. have to sort of say, well, you know, progressives can't be like them, but they also can't like handcuff themselves, and and you know, getting that balance right is is the big challenge of of our times on all this stuff, right? And, and, you know, I, on the PAYGO stuff, my, my, my uh, instinct is to, to argue for, for more spending and, 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 you know, and less kind of deficit hand-wringing than, uh, than, than most mainstream Democrats are, are, seem to be comfortable with. So in that sense, like, Republican bad faith on, on deficits really is something that Democrats should um, – be a little bit more forthright in dealing with than they are. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, well, let's 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 think about this this procedural question though. Um, you know, like I think maybe the biggest sort of structural obstacle to uh, uh, Democrats having unified control of government now is the Senate. Which, from what I've read, the, the the median state has a Republican tilt of about plus six, so like it's just structurally, um, you know, just just like incredibly, uh, you know, biased towards Republicans as a result of just like the distribution of population and how like the state boundaries are drawn, um, and that's led you know some folks to say. Like some stuff I would say is like a pretty no brainer and that would be Puerto Rico statehood and and stuff that's like I would, you know, maybe just slightly, you know, making D.C. into a state is kind of silly if you're thinking about states as being like, you know, a, a sort of contiguous, like sizable population, you know, region or whatever. But 
Yeah, and so making D.C. into a state is maybe a sort of a silly, if you're like ideal institution sort of thing, you know, like clearly that's just a city. It should be part of like Maryland maybe. But, you know, if you're, if, you know, if you're looking about like you're thinking about redressing the unfairness of the Senate and also the fact that people like 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 me who live in D.C. and are disenfranchised in terms of their congressional representation would give them some senators and a representative. And those would be Democrats forever, you know, almost uncertain, almost certainly. And so would the ones from Puerto Rico, um, you know, that. To me, you know, if like knowing what I know now, obviously, but it seems like even at the time in 2009, uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood should have been an absolute no brainer. You know, just like, oh, hey, four senators, baby. Like the, the median vote, the swing vote isn't Joe Lieberman anymore. But like it didn't even come up in 2009. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, I guess one thing you can say about that is that the the, the real big escalations kind of came around that time and in 2010 and after from Republicans. I mean, one thing I talk about in the book at some length is the fact that Democrats actually did get caught napping in a major way at around that time by the Republican escalation and procedural warfare. That, um, and, you know, we're still paying the price for that. I, I'll, let me just go into this a bit because, you know, it kind of goes, and, I'll, and then I'll loop around to your point. But, you know, the history I tell in the book is that, um, is that Republicans worked out after having gotten absolutely crushed in 2008, right? Uh, you, you may remember pundits were essentially saying the Republican Party was dead. Uh, and, you know, Obama's victory, which was, you know, powered by this um, unprecedentedly racially diverse electorate, really seemed to signal long term demographic doom for Republicans. And so their response was to um, develop a plan to take over as many state legislatures as possible, not just because they wanted power in the states, but as part of a national strategy, which was. Uh, which involved targeting specific races, spending on specific races where they actually had a chance of of capturing, you know, one legislature or developing a super majority in one uh, um, with an eye towards a national gerrymandering scheme, which would turn the House of Representatives, in effect, into kind of a fortress against these kinds of, you know, majoritarian trends when the directions of them. And Democrats really were caught asleep by that. And, and the Obama presidency was hobbled pretty badly by the Republican House. Um, and, and um, you know, we're still dealing with that now in, in what we just talked about earlier. Places like Wisconsin that are, you know, hideously gerrymandered and they shouldn't even be controlling the legislature. Then they're doing, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, other anti-majoritarian tactics and so forth. But to get around to your question, it's like, you know, the bottom line is Democrats just have to be to confront forthrightly what the Republican Party has really become and and kind of act accordingly. And so, you know, I, I write about D.C. statehood and, and, and Puerto Rican statehood. And it seems to me that, that that those are, you know, pretty appropriate responses. It's not like those it's not like they actively disenfranchise Republicans or, you know, are somehow procedurally, you know, uh, um, illegitimate. So I, the, the, the big picture is that the progressives and Democrats just have to understand what this, the, the, the opposition is willing to do and, 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 and confront it accordingly. Do you think, uh, Greg, that as important as the push for democratic procedures to counter the authoritarian uh, kind of elite uh, anti-democratic rigging of the Republican Party to in order to actually get people to embrace that as as a, a vision of what should be uh, kind of what can mobilize people to get involved in politics to vote to do all those things there needs to be a substantive vision of uh, actual policy ends and actual um, you know, not not just procedural goals, but 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 goals in terms of countering uh, Republicans and, and even some Democrats in terms of what uh, politics will do for people. 
You know, I, I think it's um, it's obvious to many people that the, the Republicans are a threat. But in part, Trump won by kind of uh, pulling the, you know, the uh, the hood over people's eyes and, and drain the swamp language and all that, uh, because a lot of people are alienated from all politics and all party politics. And so what, what, what do you think that the Democratic Party could do? in terms of actual vision beyond proceduralism to actually mobilize people to to actually enact those procedural reforms? Well, I think you got to sort of try to tie it to a broader anti-corruption, um, you know, in government message. And, and so I guess the Democrats are going to roll out something in January, which is a fairly robust set of reforms. And it's going to include stuff that, that targets voting and procedural stuff. But but also it, it, it's about limiting the power of lobbyists and, and the big money in politics. And that's stuff that actually does get people going, right? Like people instinctually understand that the process is captured by the wealthy. And so if there's a way to kind of tie, you know, the stuff that sounds procedural and kind of mind-numbingly technical to kind of broader messages about just making government work for people and not for just moneyed interests, then I, I think we can, you know, we can sell them that way. Things like automatic voter registration, uh, I think people also understand early voting. Those are things like the basic concept of making voting easier is just very popular, right? And so that's like a simple way to talk, to talk about procedure that, that is, I hope, resonant. Yeah, that's interesting. I think people might overlook a bit, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was very successful for a number of reasons, but one major reason was people saw very clearly that she was not a candidate of the donor class. She was not being funded by special interests. And the fact that she wasn't made them, I think, open to her ideas about Medicare for all and, and these very progressive policy things because they didn't just assume that she was captured in some way and therefore discounted her ideas. Yeah, I think that's a really important point right i mean the the big picture that people that everybody that you know large majority is understand very clearly is that the process can be captured by special interests and the wealthy and so you know once democrats and, and of course you know that gets into a bunch of other debates about how far democrats should go and encountering you know corporate PAC money and by the way it is a really really heartening development i think that you're seeing more and more democrats you know for swear uh, PAC money right and that's that's kind of a sign that Democrats are getting more serious about what you're talking about, which is, you know, sending a message up front immediately that they're not captured. That, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's going to be important to selling pro-democracy reforms. Greg, you're you're sort of the I feel like you're kind of from our perspective as a, you know, the, the filthy communists. Um, <laughs> you're like the loyal opposition, you know, like like uh, you're not near a tandem. And, um, um, you know, I feel like, like, like something like liberals tend to worry about, you know, you, 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 think of, you think of someone who's just like let their radicalism and their bitterness towards the, the status quo, like completely overwhelm any sort of sense of decorum or norms or like respect for like, you know, bourgeois institutions, you know, like somebody like Lenin, you know, a really hardcore guy. And I think, you know, you look at the record record of that type of radicalism and it was, you know, it's just a disastrous humanitarian catastrophe and, you know, basically a failure in terms of a, of a, of a you know, a, a, a attempt to achieve some sort of just outcome. Um, but I, then then I think, you know, like from from our seat, I look at someone like Chuck Schumer and I see like the sort of converse problem. Like looking at him out there, what a few months ago when he was doing his like gas, he was like, gas prices are are up and it's Trump's fault, and it was just like he looked tired, he sounded tired, and the messaging was just exhausted, and and it's like, you know, um, I guess it's it's not really about procedures per se, but just about like 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 are there you know I think Pelosi has some of this. But I don't think Chuck Schumer has any of the kind of like the steel, you know, the fire in the belly, like the willingness to like, like go out there and like, like, you know, throw some haymakers, you know, knock people on their butt. Like, do you think that's a problem in terms of confronting the, the, the Republican assault on our, our democratic institutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. And, and um, 
to go back to what I said earlier, you know, the basic posture needs to be the foundation of the basic posture of, of Democrats and liberals needs to be a forthright acceptance of, of what Republican power politics is really about. Right. And so, yeah, when Schumer talks about gas prices, I find it frustrating. You know, to me, uh, Democrats didn't do enough to kind of counter um, or, or, or Democrats didn't do enough to articulate kind of a big picture pro-democracy, pro-patriotism answer to Trump's uh, closing racist authoritarian message and use of the military as a political prop, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and also to his, you know, constant abuses of the process in every conceivable hideous way. I, I agree that Democrats have to do a better job of just being much more, more forceful in articulating to people what this party, especially under Trump, really is doing to the country. So, you know, it is frustrating when I think Pelosi does have more of it, you know, that type of fire in the belly that you're talking about. But, you know, she's going to she's going to transition out is my my my, you know, strong sense at this point. Well, you know, one concern as as, uh, you know, left anchor, we we're concerned, too, with um not having any Republican or Democrat that might, you know, even hew to procedural norms in a way, but that quietly, like Obama did, deports, you know, millions of people uh, or drones, you know, h- half the brown population of the world. And so I, I, I just I wonder if there isn't uh, a moment here that we're risking uh, passing uh, passing us by where, uh, as terrible as Trump is, we can take advantage of this crisis and offer very, very progressive, progressive policy positions that can um, basically go to the heart of what both parties have uh, neglected over, you know, decades. And I just wonder, you know, in, in Ryan's review of your book, um, you know, he, he saw that, you know, there were lots of good reforms, but there was a, a, a caution that some reforms might be too aggressive. And and, and I wonder, um, I wonder if that's not what we should worry about at this moment. Well, maybe not. I, you know, to go back to what you, you were talking about at this opening that Trump's providing, like take immigration, right? Like, I just don't think that there's really any way that Democrats can ever go back to that kind of accommodationist position that Obama held. And Ryan, you've written about this well, I think, you know, Obama essentially... Uh, founded his deport uh, his his immigration agenda on the idea that that Republicans could be won over through kind of a combination of a, um, Democrats showing a willingness to to you know to to do tough enforcement and also offer a sensible uh, kind of middle ground solution and we discovered that they're just too they're just too wildly radical on this issue and so Democrats the abolish ICE stuff. You know, we keep hearing, you know, centrist Democrats cautioning about that. And I find that frustrating. Right. Like to me, the, the, the issue isn't that that, quote unquote, abolish ICE, whatever that means exactly, is, is too radical. Um, the, the Democrats need to essentially stand for a complete rejection of of xenophobic nationalism and, and cruelty and, and immigration policy. And so. In that sense, I would agree with you that there's no going back to, I sure hope there isn't anyway, going back to that kind of accommodationist position. On the procedural stuff, I guess what I try to do is strike a balance in the sense where I say that, you know, and this is, a, I'm articulating a, a principle here, right? Like, to me, progressives win when the process is good um, and democratic. Uh, so, to me, the the big picture is that I don't think progressives can embrace anything that is fundamentally illiberal, if that makes sense, right? Like, to use the example that Ryan brought up early in the the broadcast, uh, you know, there's no way Democrats are going to support, um, you know, voter suppression efforts targeted at aging white people, right? I don't think any progressive would support that, (laughs) right? And, and, you know, Democrats, by the way, have a long history of, of terrible gerrymandering too but after what republicans did in the last decade i I can't you know it's unthinkable to me that they would do it at this point they can't right like so so it's it's to respond to your question alexi right so you kind of do have to worry a little right because we don't want to stray into 
uh, essentially kind of following the nihilistic right into this kind of authoritarian politics, do we? So, and and, and look, there are going to be cases where we disagree, like there might be one thing that I think is a little too aggressive or illiberal, and someone else might think, well, you know, it's actually kind of justified. That's fine. I just... I, what I want to, you know, establish as a basic principle is that we, you know, not everything, we can't do whatever we want, basically, right? You know, there have to be some limits on, on procedural hardball and, and, and that sort of stuff. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think, if anything, um, the, the, the left or leftists that, uh, that I'm referring to want to make things more democratic, I suppose, uh, rather than less Right. And so those are things like so like things like automatic voter registration are, you know, those are those are major reforms. Right. And those are pro democracy reforms. And I write about the in the book endless, you know, a lot of stuff about why I I favor that. Um, But so, you know, that's a little different than, say, something like, you know, embracing court packing or. Uh, I think, you know, there have been a few of the really, you know, the power progressive types have actually come out for things like, you know, absolutely embracing things like gerrymandering, if only to force Republicans to stop doing it. I just I, I draw a line there. I just, you know, to, it, it, the, the it should be pro-democracy, right? Like that, we need to be for democracy and, and, and not embrace things that are illiberal or anti-democratic. Is, is That's the framework that I try to establish and you know if you can talk me out of one thing or another that's fine but you know would it would it to maybe to depress you on that one a little bit um you know in this in the context of like 1935 uh uh you know when when fdr was using his democratic majorities you know that well, I guess mostly obtained through democratic means to try to push through legislation to, um, you know, fix the depression that was like threatening to destroy the country and the world. And the Supreme Court kept striking them down on like basically Lochner doctrine horseshit. Um, what was it not uh, sort of pro pro democracy to to more or less you know threaten to 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 try to overthrow the tyranny of nine or five people, actually the, 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 you know, the four horsemen of reaction as they called them back in the day, the plus the, the one guy who did flip, um, you know, to say that like, no, the, the, the people need to rule, you know, and, and yeah, and, no, listen, and, I, I'm with you on that. Like, so, you know, here's the complication as far as I understand it, you know, so there comes a point at which, a serious escalation becomes justified, right? If if the other side is manipulating the process in just such you know profound a profoundly anti democratic way, and the only way to break through is to to start to really push the procedural envelope in in, in a huge way, you know, I think that it it, it it there are points at which that becomes justified, right? Um, you know, I'm just trying to establish as a general principle that we don't go in there saying we can do whatever the f we want you yeah, know what i'm saying yeah yeah, like, yeah. I, i'm with you i you know i just I, I am with you on that one like the court packing um effort by fdr probably did help produce a breakthrough that that made the system more democratic yeah. right yeah. um and so you know that's a good argument um it although i think there's some there's some contestation around that among some historians but generally speaking like you know here's another way to think about it um sometimes the exercise of power is, is the right thing to do, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I, I actually quote a political theorist in there who's now getting kind of beaten up pretty badly by the left, but he did well on this one thing, William Galston. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's getting knocked around right now, understandably, <laughs> I think. But <laughs> but on this one point, he was really kind of prescient and, and, and sharp. He, he said that, you know, Hardball is political hardball. This is an old essay, right? But and it's remarkable how well it holds up right now. He argued that you know political hardball is actually not just justified, but you know the the correct thing to do because voters are entrusting you to use their power to to use their power and their own power. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so not using it is in a way kind of an abdication. And I I agree with that. Like I kind of embrace that. It's just and. and the types of situations you're bringing up really 
I think, illustrate that. There comes a point at which you do need to use power. I just think that the complication is to get it kind of right and really figure out when it actually is justified and when it crosses over into something that seems in some fundamental way, you know, anti-democratic or illiberal. Would yeah. you agree would you agree that Democrats tend to hamstring themselves when it comes to say bold programs like Medicare for all or whatnot when they want to have all the policy details ironed out before you can even discuss the possibility of it being proposed um, and, 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 and such kind of kind of hamstringing of uh, of a more progressive policy vision? Yeah, for sure. Look, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that they, you know, that the next that the, that the Democratic nominee campaigns on, on Medicare for all and, and doesn't sort of get like warned into into embracing a popular progressive policy or get doesn't get warned off of embracing a progressive uh and popular policy by the centrist hand ringers for sure i'm i'm you know democrats often do hamstring themselves and and uh, we're gonna see a lot of it this time again i think unfortunately yeah but it's yeah complicated though like if you look at the 2018 elections like you know democrats won the biggest um you know raw popular vote mar- uh, margin in the midterm in, in U.S. history, and they did it in kind of Republican-leaning areas, and, and they did it kind of by essentially letting the candidates kind of do whatever they thought was right to, to win, right? And so you had this kind of interesting combination of, of very progressive candidates winning in not just, you know, heavily democratic areas but also in some right red-leaning areas and then but then you also had kind of the you know more moderate uh democrats winning in tough areas too right by embracing just pragmatism and talking about fixing roads and funding schools and so i'm kind of a big believer in letting candidates just do whatever they want i you know whatever they think is right to win um, in terms of you know what they embrace, so yeah, as, as long as they they don't then put Manchkin or as I call him Munchkin in you know in charge of energy, right? <laughs> that is just inexplicable. I just you know, yeah, humor is not going to humor is not going to stop that. No way. No way. No, no, he's not. Um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's very frustrating for sure. Anything we haven't touched on so far, either in your book or, or otherwise, that you think uh, in this moment? I mean, there's a lot going on with with Trump and the and the Cohen uh, stuff. So, uh, just anything you, that you'd like to to talk about that you haven't that we haven't touched on? Yeah, and here's something that actually relates back to the topics that we've been, you know, or the broader themes we've been talking about. Like, like so, one way. Here's another way that I'm really worried that Democrats are already hamstringing themselves out of this kind of you know, uh, kind of queasiness or, or you know, lack of spine and conviction that you guys have been talking about. You're seeing this debate right now about, you know, oh, we got to be careful not to, you know, investigate Trump too aggressively, right? We got to govern. We can't investigate. And it's like this is the precisely the type of thing where Democrats totally needlessly hamstring themselves because it's going to make, you know, whoever the contemporary version of David Broder is happy, right? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It's like yeah, there yeah. isn't, it's like a completely made up conflict, like, or a completely made up tension between, you know, investigating and, and governing, right? Like, in a, what, Democrats were elected to, to, to provide a check on, on a guy who's completely corrupt and out of control, right? And, you know, implement, self-dealing, uh, you know, profiteering, uh, corrupting the system in, in all kinds of ways, you know, using bad faith justifications to implement a white nationalist agenda that involves, you know, hideously cruel policies that really hurt lots and lots of people. And so, like, to me, investigating or providing oversight on these things is governing, right? It's actually like, you know, it's it's actually responsible governing to try and rein in all these governing abuses. And so it's just mystifying to me that the Democrats are already falling into this kind of centrist framing of the of the questions that they face um, in a way that that will, you know, um, potentially lead them to be less aggressive and, and than they should be. So that is one thing that I'm also frustrated by. Do you know much about I, I've been watching this uh you know aoc and rashida uh 
Tlaib, uh, however you pronounce your last name, talking about the like freshman orientation for for like for Democrats and this like they literally had Gary Cohn there and like Raz Chetty and a bunch of you know like basically just corporate corporate of the corporate corporate suits and like a couple of milk toast liberals and no labor unions no community organizers no sort of like you know voter registration people and you know do, do you suppose like i had no idea that this was a thing but like it appears as though democrats like from basically the day even before you step foot into office you were basically just like just just drenched with this fire hose of of just kind of corporate propaganda stuff for unclear reasons yeah what was the line to aoc she doesn't know how the game works <laughs> oh great that's just great well that's that's really that's going to really um make it a whole lot easier to roll out a robust reform agenda right you know that's right that's right that's right <laughs> i mean it's just sometimes democrats are their own worst enemies obviously right but you know there's a yeah. there's yeah. there's like there's a really robust kind of progressive infrastructure in place to kind of push back on this stuff right now and you know, yeah. I think I yeah. think ultimately they're going to end up embracing some pretty good policies, uh, reform policies. I mean, it, it's interesting that they, whatever, as, as awful as that stuff is, like the fact that they're going hard on on, you know, uh, anti anti lobbying reform right out of the uh, right out of the box and linking that to pro democracy reforms like uh, you know to make it easier to vote. I think is, is an encouraging sign. Uh, do, did you see the Jonathan Chait piece where he, uh, you know, made it clear he's not a leftist, he disagrees with, with uh, the leftists, but he thinks we need the left to be the extreme of the right wing, which has become the extreme version of itself, in order for liberals like Chait to get their compromise. We need, we need the, the left more than ever. Do you think we can persuade all centrists of his vision that uh, even centrists are, are served by supporting the, the left vision so, uh, so as to counterpose the right's extremism? Well, it's kind of the, it's the contemporary version of, of FDRs go out there and make me do it, right? Um, you know, so yes, I, I I think that we do need that kind of left leftist pressure on 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 centrist Democrats. I, I don't, you know, uh, it, it, to me to me that the likelihood of, of of them rolling out some pretty good policies right out of the gate seems high, right? I mean, you know, the the package that's coming looks good to me. I haven't looked at it that closely, but it it looks like a real reform agenda and. And so, you know, it's it's a little hard to imagine uh, the Democratic candidate in 2020 not being for some version of Medicare for all. I mean, don't you guys think? I mean, it's it's a little yeah, it's a little yeah. hard to see that, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ha- it's like half the contenders have already embraced it. So, you know, even just to not appear hypocritical, there will be a big push. Yeah, um, and, right. I mean, so you know, the, the it's it's hard to imagine someone getting through the primary without being, you know, embracing a policy version of healthcare as a right, you know, um, but more along the, in the Medicare for all category than in the expand Obamacare category. Do you have any thoughts on Pamela Anderson? <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> are you sure yeah, pretty much yeah <laughs> no but it's interesting though that like the riots in in france uh as, as just perhaps a, f- a final thing to, to talk about uh for for some of our listeners it's quite confusing because there's questions about whether they're leftists whether there's reactionary elements uh well it seems like the proposals were progressive because they were to fight climate change and there's carbon taxing but then there's kind of a leftist argument that yeah except that the state had pushed all these diesel engines on the population for so long and now they're being told that sorry you know tough luck now you have to pay up for doing what we told you to do uh, you know, as in terms of policy, when it comes to progressivism, uh, do you think that sometimes uh, class is ignored and the effects of those who struggle to uh, actually deal with the ills of capitalism um, 
surprisingly, that 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 kind of comes into play even when seemingly progressive proposals like a carbon tax are, are on offer. So, so do we need to be careful about policy proposals uh, like a carbon tax for climate change that don't recognize some of the structural sources of uh, of inequality and um, and harm that are done to those that cannot maybe afford uh, those kinds of uh, answers to climate change. And just the idea that we're fighting climate change seems good enough to, pr- to support any proposal, but sometimes the deleterious effects of that proposal kind of redounds to people who, uh, you know, unfairly suffer, right, at the hands of the policy. I, I guess that's one analysis of what's going on in the riots, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I of course, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if government... Has, has created uh, structural uh, problems for 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 lower income people through its own policies. Then, it, then it obviously has a responsibility to design uh, the next uh, you know generation of policies in a way that doesn't you know kind of entrap those people who are already took the hit um, for no fault of their own. So for sure. So just to end on, I don't know if this is a, really a light note or not, but. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw Trump's tweet about about the the, friend, the Paris stuff. I think he he quoted the neo Nazis who oh, were wow. saying, I, "I you know there there was apparently some tra- uh, chanting of we want Trump." Um, and I haven't had a chance to track this down, but I think Howard Dean. Uh, so Trump tweeted out, you know, P- France is chanting we want Trump, right? Um, and Howard Dean responded, "You're quoting the neo Nazis." And so you know, and I, you know, I think that. I'm not sure whether he's right about that, but like you know, Trump is um, really empowering some extremely radical right-wing elements in all kinds of ways, right? And uh, you know, I, I don't know. To go back to your question of whether we need a left to counter that, I, I think the entire Democratic Party has to stand for, and, and all progressives and even moderate, you know, moderate Democrats have to stand for just a. A, a total and unequivocal rejection of all of this type of of of, of racism, authoritarianism, corruption—it just can't be equivocal in any way. And and I think it probably won't be, but it's going to take pressure on Democrats to 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 uh, get to 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 um, adopt that posture kind of unabashedly, because as you guys have been saying throughout, they just are always afraid of their own shadow and they then whenever a centrist warns them uh, against overreach they decide to believe it which is yeah you know know, which is just you know and there's just no reason to do that i mean this was an epic wipeout for trumpism and 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 you know and 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 republican plutocracy so you know actually that's a point worth talking about a little bit right like so if you think about what trumpism is right it's the authoritarianism and the racism and, and, and the, you know, the cruelty in deportations and locking up, you know, um, immigrant children and so forth. But it, it fuses that kind of uh, ethno-nationalism with a full-on embrace of, of Republican plutocracy, right? They tried to shred the safety net uh, by doing away with Obamacare. They, they passed an enormous tax cut for, for the, you know, for corporations and the wealthy. And all it's, I think it's worth saying that all those things were rejected in this election. And so Democrats don't need to say to themselves, oh, you know, they don't, they don't need to say to themselves, uh, you know, everyone hates Trump, right? What they should say to themselves is, you know, everyone hates racism, authoritarianism, and plutocracy, right? Exactly, so exactly. That's the, way, that's the way to get Democrats to embrace um, a, a much a, a true kind of populist uh, or progressive populism, maybe continually pointing out that that when that 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 was what was rejected. You know what I'm saying? There's a tendency to sort of slip into thinking, oh, it's just everyone hates Trump because he insults women and and so right, forth. Right, right, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, but that's yeah. not what happened, right? Like, you know, no. Democrats campaigned on a stronger safety net, on saner immigration policies. And uh, against tax cuts that will, you know, loot, loot uh, social insurance for the elderly in, in, in later generations. 
Right. That's right. It's as awful as Trump is, and maybe some people didn't like Hillary, and as much as they like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's personality and Beto's handsome, it's actually not about any of that. It's about the actual vision, right? The, it's, it's about the underlying response to these conditions. Yeah, I think that's true, right? I mean, Trump, you know, Trumpism and Republican plutocracy suffered the biggest midterm election shellacking in U.S. history. You know, there's no reason to, like, you know, limit our interpretation of that in ways that hamstring us. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think um, that's it. If the, if the left can attack, attack plutocracy from a leftist position, I think we'll be in good shape. And then, then maybe to go back to your original point, like that's how you link it up to to, to voting reform. Right. Like, you know, yeah. democ- the answer to plutocracy is better democracy. And, you know you know, not, uh, we're not going to be captured the way they are and so forth and so on. And so, you know, there's, this is going to be a perpetual argument with Democrats to get them to like, to, to do, to, to learn the the lessons that their own victories, right. Teach. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time, Greg. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Greg Sargent. Yeah. The, the, the book is called an uncivil war. Uh, available from your preferred literature distribution facility, and um, yeah, look look for it in stores near you. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks very yeah. much, guys. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. <laughs>